Okay, Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, this is the third of our one-off sermons on aspects of the Christian life. We've uh, had in praise of family, in praise of involvement, and this morning we're looking at in praise of attitude. But what is attitude? What do we mean when we say someone has a good attitude, or on the other hand, somebody has an attitude problem? Well, this passage from Philippians hopefully should help us understand, because the The same word in in the Greek has been translated in three different ways in just a few verses. Have a look at verse 2 of uh, chapter 2, where it says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Mind, purpose, attitude. The Greek word literally means to think. Paul is encouraging the Philippians to to think in the same way as each other, but more importantly, in the same way as Jesus Christ. Hence the translation, be of the same mind as Jesus Christ. Our attitude is about what is going on in our mind. What is driving us to do what we do? What is our purpose? What is our, our motivation? People talk of brilliant athletes or sportsmen who are ruined because their their attitude is wrong. It's not just about ability or training, but about the state of the mind. An attitude is the hardest thing to change. If an athlete has the ability to win, but doesn't have the belief in their mind that they can do it, then they won't win. Or likewise, if they have the ability to win, but don't have the desire to win, the drive, then they won't win. Got a picture coming up of Andy Murray after he lost in the uh, quarter-final of the French Open a couple of months ago. When John McEnroe said, Murray must change his attitude or forget winning a Grand Slam. He must be more positive. He must believe that he can win. Of course, having changed his attitude, we saw a couple of months later in the next picture. A great picture Kissing his gold medal, having thrashed Roger Federer. Obviously a change in mind, a change in outlook. 
But just as important for athletes in terms of the right attitude, it's important for Christians to have the right attitude in their walk with the Lord. Paul's concern is for the church in Philippi. And his concern was that if their attitude was wrong, if their mind was wrong, then they may not be able to stand firm in the faith. They may not be able to press on towards the prize that is theirs in heaven. And the same concern should apply to us today. To have the right attitude is to have the same mind, the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. But of course the question is, well, what should that look like? What should we be thinking about? Well, this passage here gives us a lot to to think about. Let's have a look at uh, verse 3. Because the first point I want to make is that we need to have an attitude of humility. Verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And in verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility is the key word in this passage. But what does it mean to be humble? Well, to help us understand, it may help to look at what the opposite of being humble is. That first phrase there, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. These two characteristics of selfish ambition and vain conceit really sum up what sin is all about because they they are what separates us from God. Selfish ambition is to have a goal that is focused on oneself. I'm going to achieve all that I can so that I will be fulfilled. I'm going to be successful in my career. I'm going to be successful in my my relationships. I'm going to be successful in my sport or my, my music so that I can be pleased with myself and others can look at me and admire me. How many of us have watched the, uh, the Olympic Games and seen those British sportsmen or women standing on the podium, awarded a gold medal, millions of people looking on, admiring them, heard them interview afterwards on TV and thought, wouldn't that be good if that was me? Wouldn't it be good if the whole country was cheering me on and congratulating me? We were listening to the Simon Mayo show on the radio the other day, going down to pick Ben and Joe up. And one listener phoned in to say, um, I'm 33 years old. Uh, if I really put my mind to it and trained hard day and night, which sport would I have the most chance of winning a gold medal in at Rio? Well, I think he was given the answers probably a bit late. There was, I think, only one person older than me who won a gold medal in the Olympics this year. But I don't think I'm going to be taking up horse jumping. (laughs) Vain conceit is similar to selfish ambition in that it's also focused on oneself. But it's different because it says, actually, I don't really care what you think because I know what is best. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I will do what I want to do. I will do what I think is right. I don't need your praise. I don't need your admiration. So the interview that took place with um, Ed McKeever, the uh, guy who won the gold medal in the the kayak sprint. Interviewer tried to uh, feed him the right answer afterwards as as he questioned him. He said, what were you thinking when you were standing there on the podium? Were you thinking how grateful you were to your, your parents, your friends, your, your coach, your nation? And he said, well, I hate to disappoint you, but I wasn't thinking that at all. 
The reason vain conceit is an aspect of sin, because in its extreme, vain conceit says, I don't need anybody else, and that includes God. I'm happy without him. I don't need forgiveness. I don't care if Christ died for me. Now, if we are Christians, we find that attitude quite shocking. And yet, because our lives are still tainted with sin, there is still a part of us that does things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That still says, well, I want to be my own person. I don't want people to tell me what to do. There's still a part of us that says, I'm right, and he or she is wrong. Part of us that doesn't even entertain the idea that we might actually be wrong ourselves. There are loads of things in church life that we can disagree over, that make, can make us upset, that can cause us to fall out with, with others. And we're tempted to say, no I'm, no, I'm right about this, and no one can convince me otherwise. They just need to see that they've got it wrong. Well, humility is to say, maybe I'm not right. Or maybe even if I am right, the issue is just not that important. I just need to let it go and put it in God's hands. Because he is far more interested in my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ than whether I am right or not. Humility is to ask ourselves, why do I feel so strongly about this? Is it out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Last week when we were looking at the importance of feeling affection for one another, we considered reasons why we just might not feel that affection for for others. And one of the reasons we thought was, well, maybe they just irritate us. And one way to deal with that is just to try and ignore their irritating habits. But here it goes one step further and says, actually consider them better than you. To consider someone better does not necessarily mean they are better however arrogant we may be, to judge ourselves better than than, than them. But consider them better. In other words, consider that it is worth investing time in them, helping them, encouraging them. It's worth looking out for their, their interests. It's worth praying for them. Ultimately, it's about seeing them in the same way that God sees them, seeing the potential in them, seeing them receiving their prize in heaven. Now, that may seem a long way off when you look at some people and how they think and behave, but God can do a miraculous work in them. And you can play an important part in that work if you allowed yourself to be used by God in that. Four years ago, when Chris Hoy won the Olympic gold in the men's uh, cycle sprint, he said about uh, Jason Kenny, 12 years, his junior, watch this man, he'll be good. And when Kenny was selected ahead of Chris Hoy for this year's Olympics, which meant Hoy didn't have the chance to um, uh, retain his title, this is what Chris Hoy said. He said, Jason deserves this opportunity and has a greater chance of success in the sprint. He performed really well at the World Championships and he has stepped up even more since. They made the right call. It's not about individual ambition. It's about the team winning the greatest number of medals. Consider others better than yourselves. And thirdly, look out for the interests of others. Look at verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's not looking, saying here, 
don't look out for your own interests. He knows that we will do that naturally. But look also to the interests of others. And some of the time that will mean actually giving priority to others. Sacrificing what you would like to do for what someone else would like to do. Many of us will know the names of the, uh, the brothers who won gold and bronze in the triathlon. The Brownlee brothers, in case you don't know. But uh, how, how many can remember the third member who took, place, took part in that triathlon? The third member of the British team, anybody know his name? Stuart Hayes, here comes a picture of him. Hopefully coming up in a minute, Stuart Hayes. He was the one who um, put himself at the... Sorry, no, that's uh, Chris Hoy and uh, Jason Kenny. Next photo. He's the one who put himself at the front of the, the front bike pack. Here he is at the front there. Basically to improve the chance of the Brownlee brothers getting a medal. And in fact, both of them got a medal. He sacrificed his only chances of winning anything so that they could win medals. Sorry about the number of Olympics illustrations this morning, but uh, you, know, you can't uh, waste the, uh, the opportunity. Paul's main concern for the Christians in Philippi was that they would grow in their faith. And that should be our main concern for each other. Have a look at what Paul prayed back in verse 9 of, of chapter 1 over the page. This is what Paul prays, thinking of the interests of of others. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, Paul was in chains in prison at this time. He could have spent his whole time praying for freedom, that he would be released, so that he could therefore then get out there and do the work. But he spent a lot of that time praying about others, praying that they would grow in their faith. And if we think about our own prayer life, what proportion of our time that we spend in prayer is about our own problems, our own worries? What proportion is it about the interests of others, that those who don't yet know Christ would come to faith, that those who do know Christ would grow in their faith. The more time we spend praying for others, actually the the more secure you will be in your own faith, the more joy you will have in your, your own faith. Look out for the interests of others. Have an attitude of humility. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Consider others better than yourselves. Look out for the interests of others. Now, this was a uh, school assembly, and we do school assemblies here in Long Crendon on values. Um, We'd probably stop there. We've talked, you know, about the importance of being humble as an important value. But what makes Christian teaching about such things different? What it is, is the motivation behind it, because the motivation of society would be, you know, the school probably would be, be humble because it means you'll be a nice person. And if everybody were humble, society would be a much nicer place in which to live, which is true. But the motivation for us as Christians to humble ourselves is the gospel. 
It is knowing that Christ has humbled himself for us, that we might know God. And so we come on to our next point, that be humble because Christ humbled himself. What does it mean for Christ to humble himself? Well, it's here in the passage. Let's look down. It's that uh, passage there from verse 6 to verse 11. We're told right at the beginning there in verse 6 that Jesus was in very nature God. And yet, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. It's a bit difficult to understand what that that word translated grasp means. Um, One suggestion that uh, commentators say is that as God, enjoying the glory of heaven, Jesus didn't try and cling on to that. He gave it up. could be more the... um, sense of uh, using it to his advantage. It's a very human thing for those in positions of power to, to use them to, to, their, to their advantage. In many ways, that was what original sin was about, wasn't it? Man was given a position of privilege. He was made in the image of God to enjoy a relationship with God. He was given the world to, to enjoy. And yet, he tried to take advantage of it, to exploit it. He wanted to become God, effectively. But whichever emphasis you want to take, the main point comes in the next two verses here and it's expressed in different ways but which all point to the same thing. Jesus Christ behaved in a very different way. He humbled himself for us. Now you hear people talking a lot these days about rights, insisting on their rights. Jesus had a right to remain in heaven, to receive the honour, the glory that he deserved and yet he chose to give up his rights. He chose to take on a lowly position. He wasn't humiliated in the sense of being forced to do something against his will. He chose to be humble. He chose to become a man knowing that it would mean being beaten and killed. And so it says in verse 7, he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself which again has prompted discussion. If he emptied himself, what exactly did he empty himself of? Was it his, his divine attributes, his power, his knowledge, retaining his love, his holiness? I think it's probably more he, he emptied himself of his status and majesty that went with his divine being. As we sang earlier in that song, he laid aside his majesty, put that to one side. He laid aside his glory, his heavenly throne, for a while, before later being exalted to the highest place to which he rightly belonged. He made himself nothing. Another way of saying that he humbled himself is, look down in verse 7, he took the very nature of a servant. A servant serves another, that is a humble position. His job is to put the interests of another person first, to make sure they are okay, rather than oneself. And for God to choose to do that is quite amazing, isn't it? It'd be one thing to choose to become a man and become a powerful man, a warrior-type figure, a ruler, the sort of Messiah-type figure that the, the Jews were expecting. But to choose to become a normal human being, a humble carpenter, was something very different. His divine power in this normal human being role was his authority to teach, 
his authority to heal, to cast out demons, to bring back from the dead, to forgive sin. All aspects of serving. But the main way in which he came to serve was there in verse 6. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. As he said himself, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus' servant had meant that he would become obedient to the Father to the point of dying for people. It was not an easy thing to do. He, we know the torment that he went through. It was something that he had the power to avoid. And yet, he chose the cross. Now that should be enough to make us want to live humble lives. But there's a final encouragement in this passage. And that is that he who humbles himself will be exalted. In his life, Jesus taught that the last shall be first, that he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And if Christ had simply died, there would be a sense of, well, so what? What about the enemy of sin? What about the enemy of death? How have they been dealt with? Jesus died, but he was raised to life. He achieved the victory over sin and death. And the great encouragement from this passage, as we look to Christ coming again one day, is that Christ has been exalted to the highest place. He's been given the name that is above every other name. He's been placed in the position of highest honour and supreme power. And the reason that Jesus is exalted is, as it says here, because of his total self-humbling. It is like vindication. The Father demonstrating his approval of his Son. The Father loves the Son because of his obedience. The son loved the father so much that he chose to be obedient to the point of death. The father exalts the son because the father loves to exalt the humble. Have a look at verse, verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That name is Lord. The name, when, people, when he comes again, at which every knee will bow, whether of angels in heaven, whether of the living or of the dead. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the Bible tells us that those who have not acknowledged him as Lord now will one day be forced to do so. But when he appears in glory, there will be something about that glory that will make everybody have to bow the knee. But then it will be to their everlasting shame rather than their everlasting joy. Because to those who in faith humble themselves now, to those who bow the knee, they, we are promised, will be exalted, they will receive the crown of life and they will reign with Jesus forever. Amen. So the moment of quiet, just to think of what Jesus has achieved for us.